The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Sometimes it's necessary to blast before you build. And so these construction companies will bring in these big demolition crews, dynamite, and they'll blast away to get ready to build. Put the foundation in the hole that's left from the dynamite blast. It's not only true in construction, it's true in life that before one can build into his life new habits and new values, he has to blast out the old ones, he has to get rid of them. And we all know how, how hard, how difficult that, that is. But there is a principle, I think, in life, and that is that before you can build up, you have to tear down. Um, just let me read, before I get into Ecclesiastes, um, an illustration of that from the book of Jeremiah. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That ought to say something about abortion, by the way. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. Look at it. To pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, then to build and to plant. I was uh, reading through the New Testament not long ago and discovered something I had not seen before. Is that You remember when they brought Jesus uh, to the temple to consecrate Him as a baby? Simeon was there and he took Jesus in his arms and, and blessed the Lord and blessed the child and said to Mary, the mother of Jesus, this son shall be for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Now we say it for the rise and fall. Simeon said that this son will be for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. In other words, before there can be the exaltation, there has to be the bringing low. I believe that's true in all of life. I believe it is especially true in the Christian life that before there can be the exaltation and the growth in the Christian life, there has to be the breaking down, the brokenness, brokenness, before there can be genuine spirituality. So the principle is, before you, have, before you build, you have to blast. Now that is true prophetically for Jeremiah, and it's true philosophically for Solomon. Because for nine chapters, this man has been attacking and assaulting and blasting away at these philosophies of life in order that he might get them out of our minds, in order that we might put in our minds the right kind of thoughts, the right kind of philosophy. 
Now, I think there are four important philosophies of life, popular philosophies of life, that, that are true now, true in the day of Solomon. I just want to mention them. You, you can jot them down and give you a brief explanation of what each one really uh, proliferates or, or, or presents. First of all, there is materialism. A philosophy of life is materialism. Materialism says possessions satisfy, provide yourself. Possessions satisfy, provide yourself. And we've seen the uh, materialism rampant in our time. The materialist says that, that the winner in the game of life is the one who dies with the most toys. So I'm going to put all, get all the toys I can get together. I'm going to make all the money I can so I can buy more things, so I can get, make more money and spend it. Materialism says, possessions satisfy, provide yourself. Then there's Epicureanism. Now, you may not recognize that word, but you would recognize the playboy philosophy or hedonism. Epicureanism says, life is a ball, enjoy yourself, have a good time. I mean, don't worry about these restrictions that these do-gooders place on life. Nobody should tell you what to read or what to, where, where to go or what to say or what to think or what to listen to. I mean, don't pay any attention to the restrictions. If it feels good, do it. Now that sounds real good, but it's not very funny if you're married to one. There is a third philosophy that perhaps is most familiar to us in our day. It's called humanism. Humanism says, humanity is glorious, exalt yourself. And that man is etern mankind is eternally good. And that the goal of man is to discover his, how good he is. That we need to accentuate the positive. And that we need to highlight the good that is in every human heart. Because man is basically eternally good. Mankind is glorious, exalt yourself. It is a philosophy presented by Henley in the poem you memorized in high school in, called Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit, from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Humanism. And then there is a fourth philosophy, it's called fatalism. Fatalism says the game is fixed, resign yourself. The game is fixed, resign yourself. Proliferated by such films as The Day After. Some of you saw that, didn't you? That documentary on nuclear holocaust. You remember that conversation? those two guys had as they walked down the street just before the Holocaust. One said to the other, all of this is going to occur, so why go on? I'm just an empty, blind robot pulled by the strings of fate. This whole game of life is fixed. Might as well resign yourself to it because there's no hope for man anyway. Now Solomon brings us back to reality and he blasts these philosophies so that we can build wisdom into life 
And that's the turning point in the book of Ecclesiastes. Somebody's asked me the other day, when are we going to get out of this negative book? Well, we've already turned the corner. Let's go ahead and hang in there to the end of it. The corner was turned in chapter 7 when, Paul, when, the, uh, when Solomon began to talk about wisdom. And wisdom as we defined it from a biblical perspective is, this, is the ability, God-given ability to see life objectively and handle life with stability. And so we've got to get rid of all these other philosophies in order that we might get a biblical philosophy on life, a biblical perspective. And that's what this is about, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Are you ready now? I want to point out four irrevocable realities. Now there are some things you can blast out of life, but there are some things that are irrevocable realities, irreversible, incontrovertible, incontrovertible realities of life. There are four of them. And each one of them cuts at the heart of one of these prevailing philosophies. Now watch this, it's interesting. First um, incontrovertible reality is this, that there is a sovereign hand of God in life. There is the sovereign hand of God in life that cuts at the heart of fatalism. Look at verse 1. For I have taken all this to, to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. This guy is, he's caught on. He, I mean, he's, he's escaped this pessimism. And he says, all of this is in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love our hatred, anything awaits him. Now watch what he's saying. He's saying that there is in life this sovereign hand of God, that we're not victims of chance, that we're not some blind robot that's been wound up and released by some evolutionary process. We are not some blotches on some gigantic blotter. Our hand, our life is in the hand of God. And he said, whatever awaits you, whether it be love or hatred, whatever awaits you there, out there tomorrow, it passes through the hand of God to get to you. And there's nothing in life that ever touches you that does not pass through the hand of God. And nothing ever happens to you that does not have His nod. There is a sovereign hand of God in life. Now, that does not mean that everything that happens to you comes from God, but it is the good news that God, that, that nothing ever touches you that God has not permitted. Remember, this is a God of love and mercy. A few weeks ago, right before Christmas, as a matter of fact, I got this telephone call that my um, former secretary in, in uh, Seminole, Texas, and her husband, godliest people on earth, the sweetest Christian people you'll ever meet. And they were coming home from Arkansas where they'd been attending his aged father. And they, they were just, he's retired and, and they, they, were, they were so attentive of their aged father. And they, they're just wonderful people. Fifteen miles from their home, Seminole, Texas, they were hit head on by a, a carload of drunk people, drunk Mexicans. 
and the highway patrol said that the car that hit them must have been going at least 100 miles an hour. It, wel it welded the cars together. They were killed instantly, both of them. This week I picked up the telephone and I, I, I thought they had a daughter. The daughter was a mission volunteer at one time. She served for two years in Africa and just a godly young lady. Her husband works in, in, in BSU work. And, and I pick up the telephone just to call them talk to her. Got her on the telephone. Such a mature Christian young lady. And I was talking to her. She said, oh yeah, she said, I miss mother and dad. I miss getting to talk to mother and daddy and all that. And then she said this. She said, now don't ever think, I don't ever think the slightest way that God caused their accident, but I can see his hand in that in so many ways since that happened. The condition in which we live comes from the sovereign hand of God. Our job, our business, our loss of job, our loss of business, our background is in the hand of God. Incontrovertible reality. Second. Second truth, reality, inevitable, is this. Death awaits us all. Verse 2. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, the man who does not, the pagan and the Christian. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. There is one fate for every one of us. Death awaits us all. And it doesn't matter how much we try to camouflage it, this life races toward the grave. And life is just a little speck on the, on, the, on the graft. We're like grass, the scripture says, that today is and tomorrow is gone. Job says, my life is swifter than a runner's race. He doesn't picture it as a slow-moving caravan across the country. He pictures his life as a man riding at full gallop across a short stage. This life races toward the grave. Now, I know that... Uh, um, Dentures can bring youth back to the mouth and cream can bring youth back to the skin. And, uh, Grecian 44 or whatever it is can bring uh, youth back to the head, but it cannot prolong life. And reality just keeps breaking through the paper mache mask and screaming at us like a marine sergeant. You are going to die. And so Psalms 89 says, What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the graves? And Ezekiel says, The soul that sinneth shall surely die. And Romans 5 says that whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death is passed on all men, for all have sinned. And James 4 says, Which is your life? Is it? You're just a, a, a mist that appears for a little while, then you vanish. Incontrovertible truth, we're headed for death. Third, now I'm not, uh, I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just uh, reading what, uh, I'd like to make this uh, a little more cheerful, but uh, it's the way it is. By the way, death awaits us all, explodes, cuts to the heart of materialism. Some things, everything for the, for the good and the bad is all going to die with us. 
All right, third. There is lurking within the human heart evil and insanity. Look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, for that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are what? Are full of evil. That Hebrew construction means they are full of every conceivable badness. And you may have never read this next part, may not, may, may not have known it was in Scripture. Look at the next part of that. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Word means the loss of control, the, the inability to control. And he's saying that in, in the human heart there is every conceivable evil and the loss of the, of the ability to control life and self. Why would a man walk away from his wife you ask him and he'll probably tell you, I don't know why I did that. And why would a woman betray the love of her husband? You ask her sometime and she'll say, I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I did that. And you ask a man who is killing himself in this maddening kind of pace in life, why don't you pause a while and enjoy what's got into you? Why do you do that? And he'll say, I, I don't really know why I do that. And I talked to a man not long ago who had walked out on his, on his family and had turned his back on his faith and his church. And as I talked to him, he acted like it was like temporary insanity. He said, I don't know why. What got into me? I don't know why I did that. And the scripture says that when the prodigal son, what? came to himself, came to himself. The scripture says when he came to himself, that is when he stepped back into sanity, there is lurking in every heart, every conceivable kind of evil and insanity, the inability to control choices. And this is what Wallace Hamilton says, listen to this, Human nature can be wonderful. Human nature can be terrible. Nothing it touches is wholly good and nothing it touches is wholly evil. You look at it on some days and in some people and you see it rise to heights of unbelievable greatness. You see human nature expressed in some ways that make you proud to belong to such a breed who for all their pettiness and littleness have the capacity in them for something noble that rises at times to sheer God-likeness. And you want to stand up and cheer. But you look at it on other days and in other people and it is positively hideous. Man, said Pascal, is in an incomprehensible monster. You see human nature lie, cheat, and kill for a bit of land, a bit of power, a bit of love. You see it crawl like a snake in the grass, treacherous, brutal, repulsive, drunken and cruel. And you want to put your foot on the thing and stamp it into the earth. You wonder how in the world God can possibly put up with it. And you say, the more I see a people, the more I like my dog. And in his marvelous little novel, Blood and Sand, Blasco, 
has the final scene, the goring of the, of the, of the, of the matador by the bull. And the matador picks him up on the end of his horns and tor- tosses him and gores him and tramples him. And the, and the poor man is a bloody mess as they carry him out of, the, out, of the, out of the arena. And as this bloody man is carried out, the crowd cheers. And Blasco says, And now we listen to the only kind of, of beast there is, humanity. Now the fact of the matter is, know your heart, know this, know this heart of yours, that inside of it there is this incomprehensible evil and this insanity. And that just explodes the philosophy of humanism. Right? Well, there's a little more, a little, little more cheery stuff. Verses 4 through 6. There is, fourth, hope for the living. I love this. Now watch this. A little thought here. For whoever is joined with the living, look at this, for whoever is joined with the living, there is hope. There is hope for the living. It it, it turns the tide. All that we've been saying, we're seeing the tide turn. Look at it. It gives light to the darkness. And he quotes this Arabic proverb. For he says, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. That's an Arabic proverb. I'm explain it in just a minute. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything or have any longer any reward for their memories forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. They, they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. As long as there is... All this stuff. You, you got maybe you got dog you pamper. Somebody was telling me the other day, so I feed my dog out of my. Out of, he's hand fed. Bless his heart. Hand fed. <laughs> Mind lucky if he gets a bone every now in the backyard. But but when this was written, dogs were not as pampered. In fact, dogs were mongrels. They were scavengers. They lived in packs and they were wild. Now this is what the author is saying. He's saying. That a, that a live dog is better than the king of the jungle, better than the king of beasts. Why? Because he's alive. And as long as there's life, there's hope. As long as there's life, there's purpose. There's dream, there are dreams. As long as there's life, there's a vision. As long as there's life, you can plan. He said, there's hope for the living. And he turns the corner. He's saying, as long, because you're alive, you, you know, lift up your head, you can, you can dream, you can plan, and you can have a purpose in life. You've got life, you've got, you've got a reason, you see. I love it. And I got a message that my mother fell and, and uh, hurt herself, and she was already poor health and senile and all that. And I was going to where she was in the hospital, and and I got to the hospital, and there she was, just, you know, out of it. And, and, and I never thought, you know, all I could think about was what we're going to do when we get, you know, get well. And I went and I made arrangements with the doctor about all the care that she needed. And if she got out of there for a little while in a nursing home, I mean, she was alive. I didn't even think about it. I was making plans, and et cetera. Got back home three days later, I got a call, and she was dead. 
And so when I was headed home for that, that day, on that, for that, I, I wasn't thinking about you know, planning or anything. What I was thinking about is putting her away. Life was over. Listen, folks. Things may be really rough and tough and all that kind of stuff, and you may have it bad. Let me say, you're alive. And because you're alive, you can dream, and you can, you can, you can, you can rise above it, and you can plan, and you can hope. And you can, and you can, you can have, you, you can have the future. That's what he's saying. Incontrovertible reality. He shoots down fatalism. All right, now, how do I respond? I love this. Now, watch this carefully. How do I respond with regard to that? This is a great way to live. This is a great way to live. The Book of Ecclesiastes in in in, in a terrible book. Somebody was telling me in the hall a while ago, he said he picked up a hitchhiker one time and a guy told him that Ecclesiastes wasn't even supposed to be in the Bible. It's a terrible book, he said. It's a great way to live. Look at verse 7, chapter 9. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Okay, how do I live? First, I live free from guilt. I don't have to live in guilt. He's already approved me, you see. I don't have to strive to, 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 to gain His approval and His favor. He's already accepted me. He's already approved me, you see. Now you say, go and live in happiness because He has already approved you. It's a terrible thing to live in guilt. It's a terrible thing to feel like that you have to earn the favor of someone. Some of us had to do that as kids. We felt like we had to. We had to... We, we had to, to, to earn the favor of our parents. And we're constantly striving to gain and win their approval. He's saying, hey, forget it. You're already approved. Now live in the light of that approval. Tremendous way to live is to understand that God loves you and He's already accepted you and by His grace He's approved you. Now go and live in love. Live in that love and that grace. All right, secondly, verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time. Underline that. Now some people coming out of left field take this literally and dress in white all the time. I mean, I've always wanted to wear a white suit. You know, like Dr. Criswell. I may get me one. Dress in white. Use this as a reason. Let your clothes be white all the time. And let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, in case you think that what he's saying is, in verse 7, is that you just go out and have a big time and, and drink your wine and eat your bread and get fat. You better watch verse 8. He says, dress in wine and let there be no oil lacking on your head. You know what he's talking about? The, the dress in white symbolizes purity and righteousness. And the oil is the symbol of the Spirit of God, the anointing of God, the Spirit of God on your life. Now this is how I'm to live in light of the fact that these philosophies have been exploded. I am to walk in the purity and the power of the Holy Spirit. Somebody else say amen to that. Thank you. I am to walk and live in the purity and in the power of the Holy Spirit upon my life. So I'm dressed in white and there's plenty of oil on my head. The evidence of the anointing of God. The anointing of God. Told you said. We have no obligation to give any spiritual aid to anybody who does not have the oil on his forehead. All right, third, 
He says in verse 9, look at that. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love. Assuming that's your wife. <laughs> Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which, she, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is the reward in life, your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Third, enjoy life with the woman you love. That means to cultivate, please get this down, means to cultivate marital and family pleasure. Cultivate it. Marital and family pleasure. Somebody said that that celibacy and abstinence is not hol the holiest state. It's not holier than matrimony. Enjoy, he's saying. Enjoy life with a woman you love. It's interesting that that word in the Hebrew is see, S-E-E. And what he's saying is see life with a woman you love. It means experience the full range of, human, of the human emotion and passion. Experience the full range of, the human, of human emotion and passion with the woman you love or the man you love. Let me tell you something, guys. I'm going to clue you in. There's more to, to marriage than reading the Bible together. Now that probably, does that shock you? <laughs> There's more to, more to marriage than reading the Bible together. Some, you know, some people say, we, I had seminary kids, they'd come to me and they'd give me this cock and bull story that, that uh, they're all they're going to spend their days just reading the Bible together. Now, well, you're going to miss out on a lot. <laughs> if, if that's all you're going to do is just, I mean, that's certainly part of it. Uh, the author of the book Ecclesiastes said, experience for yourself the full range of human emotion and passion with the person you love. Cultivate marital and family relations. Now, can you think of a better life than this? To live in the cultivation of the love of a wife or a husband and the love of children, in the purity and in the power of the Holy Spirit, without feeling guilt at all because you've been accepted by the grace of God. I mean, what better life is there on earth than that? I'd hate to have to live in guilt all the time because I wasn't right with God, my fellow man. That's pretty, this can get exciting. Now if you want to read verse 10 with me, what's the, what's the language of this? Whatever your hands find to do. We used to quote that in G-A-R-A's. Whatever your hands find to do, verily do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol, that is in, in the realm of death where you're going. No, I don't see any restrictions there, do you? I don't see any restrictions there. He's saying throw yourself fully into life. Throw yourself fully into life. Don't be bashful. Take a big bite. Throw yourself into life with contagious enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Thoreau says that none are so old as those who have outlived their enthusiasm. Throw yourself into life with enthusiasm. I don't see any restrictions there. I see a guy loving life. Why? Because he's got a happy home and he lives in the acceptance of God and he's living a pure life and he's anointed by the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit of God. This, 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 this will preach. 
I didn't know this was going to be so great. I can't wait, you know, to preach this again. All right, how do you live? All right, winding it up. How do you live? Free of guilt. You live free of guilt. You live contagiously happy. You live committed to God and to marriage. You live in thoroughly involved. Somebody said, wherever you are, be there. Give it all you've got. Wherever you are, be there. Let me give those again. Free of guilt. Contagiously happy. Committed to God in marriage. Thoroughly involved. Oh, to be tearing the door down, ripping up the pews. Get out there and get it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that indeed the reality of it all is that your way is the best way and your life is the best life. And we thank you that you have so crowned us and so gifted us and so blessed us. We're so grateful, so unworthy. We thank you that you accept us and you love us. You don't reject us that you approve us, that you're not content with anything less than the best, and yet you do not turn, us, turn away from us when we fail. Lord, we thank you for the life that we have in Christ Jesus, whose name I pray. Would you look here, please? There will be three invitations tonight. An invitation for those of you who have not yet placed your faith in Christ for you to come and give your heart and life to Him. Jesus is the answer. That's true. And there's not a question that He does not answer. There's not a need He does not meet. And that from our relationship to Jesus Christ and our faith in Him, we move out into life. I want you to come tonight if you've never trusted Christ. We'll help you to be saved. Phyllis and I will share with you how to be saved. We'll help you do that, just to pray and receive the Lord. And there may be some of you who want to come and join the church tonight. And I suppose that in every service, there is the tug on our heart to, to say, I want to live a better life, and I want to be closer to God. Maybe you feel that. You need to come publicly because that's going to just kind of seal that, nail that down for you. I hope that you'll have the courage to do what God wants you to do while we stand to sing.